hit And just like the guy whose feet are too big for his bed Nothing seems to fit Those raindrops are falling on my head They keep falling This is hell. Good morning, listeners. It is Monday, July 3rd, and you know what that means. No, not the day before uh, American Independence Day, although I guess it is. But more importantly... It's officially the beginning of the dog days of summer. That's right. There are official dates for this, which I only recently learned about. And because I have the show all to myself today and the rest of the week, I'm going to tell you uh, all about that. According to the Farmer's Almanac article by Catherine Beckman, titled, What and When Are the Dog Days of Summer? The dog days of summer last from July 3rd to August 11th. Now, what are the dog days of summer exactly? What do they have to do with dogs? The ancient origins of this common phrase might surprise you. The article then asks, what are the dog days of summer? Getting right to the point. The term dog days traditionally refers to a period of particularly hot, humid weather occurring during the summer months of July and August in the Northern Hemisphere. In ancient Greece and Rome, dog days were believed to be a time of drought, bad luck, and unrest, when dogs and men alike would be driven mad by the extreme heat. Today, the phrase doesn't conjure up such bad imagery, however. Instead, the dog days are associated purely with the time of summer's peak temperatures and humidity. So why are they called the dog days of summer? The article continues. This period of sweltering weather coincides with the year's heliacal, meaning uh, at sunrise, uh, rising of Sirius, the dog star. Sirius is part of the constellation Canis Majoris, that is, the greater dog, which is where Sirius gets its canine nickname, as well as its official nickname, Alpha Canis Majoris. Not including our own sun, Sirius is the brightest star in the sky. I did not know that. The article continues. In ancient Greece, Egypt, and Rome, it was believed... The dawn rising of Sirius in mid to late summer contributed to the extreme weather of the season. In other words, the combined heat of super bright Sirius and our sun was thought to be the cause of summer's sweltering temperatures. The name Sirius even stems from the ancient Greece, Serios, meaning scorching. 
For the ancient Egyptians, the dawn rising of Sirius, known to them as Sothis, also coincided with the Nile River's flood season. They used the star as a watchdog for the event. Of course, the appearance of Sirius does not actually affect seasonal weather here on Earth, but its appearance during the hottest part of the summer ensures that the lore surrounding the star lives on today. The article continues. When are the dog days of summer? The exact dates of the dog days can vary from source to source, and because they're traditionally tied to the dawn rising of Sirius, they've changed over time. However, most sources agree that the dog days occur in mid to late summer. Here at far the Old Farmer's Almanac, we consider the dog days to be the 40 days beginning July 3rd and ending August 11th. This is soon after the summer solstice in late June, which also tends to be the beginning of the worst of summer's heat. There's also a little bit of more about uh, Sirius, the brightest star in the sky, if you don't count our own sun, that is. Under the right conditions, it can even be seen with the naked eye during the day. Sirius is one star in a group of stars that form the constellation Canis Major, meaning a greater dog, it's no surprise, then, that the nickname of this big, bold star became the Dog Star. There's also a great illustration. Uh, highly encourage you all to look this up on almanac.com. In ancient Egypt, the Nile River flooded each year, usually beginning in late June. The, the people welcomed this event, called the Inundation, because the floodwaters brought rich soil needed to uh, grow crops in what was otherwise a desert. Indeed, this makes, this is my filling in the blank here, has made uh, Egypt the sort of grain belt of the Mediterranean world. Uh, back to the article. Uh, no one in Egypt knew exactly when flooding would start, but they noticed a coincidence that gave them a clue. The water began to rise in the days when Sirius, known to them as Sothis, began to rise before the sun. Sothis and the inundation became so important to the Egyptians' survival that they began their new year with the new moon that followed the star's first appearance on the eastern horizon. Subheading A time of ill fortune? Unlike the Egyptians, the ancient Greeks and Romans were not as pleased by Sirius's appearance. For them, Sirius signaled a time when evil was brought to their lands in the form of drought, disease, or discomfort. Virgil, the Roman poet, wrote in the Aeneid that, quote, fiery Sirius, bringer of drought and plague to frail mortals, rises and saddens the sky with sinister light, end quote. Is this just superstition, the article asks? A 2009 Finnish study tested the traditional claim that the rate of infections is higher during the dog days. The authors wrote, quote, this study was conducted in order to challenge the myth that the rate of infections is higher during the dog days. To our surprise, the myth was found to be true." End quote. The article then concludes with one final section titled, Dog Days of Summer Folklore. Old timers believed that rainfall on the dog days was a bad omen. As foretold in this verse, dog days bright and clear indicate a happy year. But when accompanied by rain, for better times, our hopes are in vain. And in an old farmer's almanac quote from an 
1817 edition. It states, Dog days are approaching. You must, therefore, make both hay and haste while the sun shines, for when old Sirius takes command of the weather, he is such an unsteady, crazy dog, there is no dependence upon him. So there you go, listeners. The dog days are here, and now you know why. In other weather-related news, it also looks like God, or maybe Gaia, or the gods, whoever you prefer as your divine or natural intermediaries in everyday life, um, sent flash floods to intervene in uh, Chicago's attempt to cede its streets to NASCAR. Who knew that our uh, expansive stormwater system that took uh, decades to complete and billions to build, but is already obsolete thanks to climate change making our uh, city that was built on a swamp experience uh, more frequent and more intense rainfall than uh, planners could have ever uh, imagined. Indeed, our stormwater system set up to accommodate like uh, about two inches of rainfall or so and uh, we've been getting more frequent and more heavy rainfall since its completion Uh, but who knew that this obsolescence would actually come in handy sometimes for those not in the know there was supposed to be a NASCAR race in the Chicago streets yesterday quite on brand for our uh, neoliberal city government handing over one of the most basic public resources, municipal roads, temporarily to a filthy rich corporate interest to profit from for a, uh, no doubt, uh, patriotically gilded uh, weekend event made for out-of-towners. These kinds of events are usually miserable for locals, but a lot of fun for the fans who come in from the exurbs and beyond. It's the only time uh, these predominantly white men, especially the case of NASCAR fans, um, usually afraid of their own shadows enough to shoot anything that moves, uh, dare to venture into the big bad city they've been conditioned to fear. Anyway, this race was rained out yesterday, and here's what NASCAR had to say about it. This might be the first time a NASCAR press release has ever been read on this show, so... You're hearing history here, folks. Chicago, Illinois. Drenching rain and standing water on the Chicago street course forced NASCAR to declare Cole Custer the winner of the Loop 121 NASCAR Xfinity Series race three laps short of halfway and five laps short of the completion of Stage 2. Custer led all 25 laps of NASCAR's first ever street course race before lightning strikes in the area on Saturday caused NASCAR to red flag the race and then to postpone completion until Sunday morning. But the rain persisted, forcing NASCAR's hand. It's been an awesome weekend overall, said Custer, who drives number 00, Stuart Haas Racing Ford. The whole event, the whole thing that NASCAR's put on here, the whole city, it's been pretty unusual. 
courses such a blast to drive today we definitely wish we could finish we could have run all the laps but we don't have we don't want to win it this way but at the end of the day we had a really fast car i think everybody knew that nascar rules state a race is a ruled official either at its halfway mark or the conclusion of stage two whichever comes first in this instance lap 28 would have signified halfway and deemed the event official however because of the extraordinary circumstances following the street course officials chose instead to rule that xfinity series race complete per section 1.6.b of the nascar xfinity series rulebook which states that quote circumstances that are either unforeseen or otherwise extraordinary the sanctioning body as a practical matter may make a determination regarding the conduct of the event. NASCAR issued a statement explaining the decision to curtail the race. With standing water and significant flooding a significant issue at the racetrack throughout the city, there was no option to return to racing prior to shifting to NASCAR Cup Series race operations. Throughout the entire planning process for the Chicago street race, our relationship with the city of Chicago has been strong. I bet it has. And uh, among the most valuable assets in reaching this historic weekend. In the spirit of that partnership, returning on Monday for the completion of a NASCAR Xfinity Series event two laps short of halfway was an option we chose not to employ. Based on several unprecedented circumstances, NASCAR has made the decision to declare Cole Custer the winner of the race. The article goes on and on, but congrats to Cole Custer for winning a NASCAR race that didn't happen outside of the qualifying round. And thank you, Mother Nature, for putting a damper on the best laid plans of NASCAR. I'm sure the fans are now uh, wondering where their uh, refund is going to come from. Sweet tears indeed. Speaking to you from Second Story Studios above Kerry's Lounge on 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, I'm Will Ippen, producer of This Is Hell. I'm still filling in for Chuck Mertz, who's still recovering for um, hernia surgery. Here's his most recent update. Yo, I'm in a lot of pain and on a lot of painkillers that have horrible side effects. I can barely walk, and when I do, it is excruciating. They told me it would be like this for three or four days, so I'm hoping to be up and about by Saturday. It's like I'm being stabbed repeatedly in the stomach. Well, it's been a couple of days since that update, so I hope Chuck, that the pain is abating on schedule and that you will be, in fact, rejoining us soon and that you can enjoy tomorrow's festivities over Warren Park where the community comes together and blows things up to celebrate America's birthday. Feeling stabbed in the gut so you don't have to? This is hell. Coming up, our July 5th, 2008 interview with Rick Shankman. 
Rick is the author of Just How Stupid Are We? Facing the Truth About the American Voter from Basic Books. The second chapter of that book was excerpted at Tom Dispatch as the article, How Ignorant Are We? The Voters Choose, But on the Basis of What? Rick is an Emmy Award-winning investigative reporter, a New York Times bestselling author, and the Associate Professor of History at George Mason University. And he's also a founder and editor of History News Network, a website that features articles by historians on current events. I might add that History News Network also features the occasional spat between historians for... uh, As a profession, we disagree with one another on quite a bit. Things can get a little feisty in there. I highly recommend checking out History News Network, which can be found at historynewsnetwork.org. Without further delay, let's see what Rick and Chuck were talking about back in 2008. You are here, and this is hell. Now is Rick Shankman. He is the author of Just How Stupid Are We? Facing the Truth About the American Voter. The second chapter of that book was excerpted at TomDispatch.com as the article, How Ignorant Are We? The Voters Choose, But on the Basis of What? Rick is an Emmy Award-winning investigative reporter, New York Times bestselling author, associate professor of history at George Mason University. He is also the founder and editor of History News Network, a website that features articles by historians on current events, and he also blogs at a website entitled How Stupid. Good morning, Rick. Hi, let me just correct that. HowStupidBlog.com. I couldn't get the How Stupid blog. Somebody else had that. So this is HowStupidBlog.com. HowStupidBlog.com. Yeah, How Stupid. I would be chasing down that URL pretty quickly, yeah, yeah. too. <laughs> uh, you, at the starting of the uh, excerpt that was at uh, Tom Dispatch, you have a quote from Thomas Jefferson saying, if a nation expects to be ignorant and free in a state of civiliz- civilization, it expects what never was. And what never will be. And then you cite this study where it's one in four Americans uh, can name more than one of the five freedoms guaranteed by the First Amendment. But more than half of Americans can name at least two members of the Simpsons. In fact, 22 percent of Americans could name all five Simpson family members, but only one in a thousand can name all five First Amendment freedoms. And, you know, I immediately tested myself in the one I forgot, and I can't believe I forgot it, the right to petition the government for redress of grievances. I mean, people always remember religion, speech, speech, press, assembly, but I I, I can't believe that I forgot. I was embarrassed, and I just wanted to make sure that our audience knows I I, I got one wrong, too. But I got to admit, You know, it kind of makes sense that people don't know the five uh, freedoms. Uh, Who's to blame? Because, I mean, you know, it it is kind of hard. Simpsons I can watch three times a day. I could watch every channel and listen to every radio station. I'm not going to hear the five freedoms every day. Who's to blame? Is it the media? Is it us? Is the government? Is it the educational? Who's to blame? Well, I don't actually make the argument in the book that the American people are stupid. I think that would be as stupid as saying the American people are smart, which you hear from politicians all the time. It's just too gross a generalization to be making about 300 million people. But I do argue that our politics are often stupid, and the reason is people are ignorant. And the, the reasons for this ignorance, well, it takes 
it takes several hundred pages for me to go through the the forces that <laughs> right. work there. Uh, but let's let's talk about a few of them. Let's let's begin by talking about a paradox. In 1940, six in ten Americans had not gone past the eighth grade, so we didn't have a lot of schooling. Today, most Americans have had some college education. And yet, at the same time that we have been getting smarter and smarter in terms of the number of years we spend in school, in, in school, at that same time, our politics have been getting dumber and dumber. So something has happened in the last half century that has brought us down. And the main force that I identify in the book is television. Before 1965, most Americans got most of what they know about politics from reading the morning newspaper. Since around 1965, it's been from television. And television is just a terrible source of information. It's a great source of misinformation. It's a, uh, a wonderful instrument if you're trying to get across emotion and experience. If you want to know what it's like to be a ditch digger, uh, far better than reading a story about ditch digging is to see a guy digging a ditch and seeing what his world is like with a, a camera on top of him. Uh, that's where television excels. It excels in showing fires and natural disasters and people responding to moments of extreme stress. But it's not very good at explaining why there are forest fires, why uh, the weather patterns are changing. And in other words, if you're looking for explanations, don't look to TV. So what's happened is we get most of our information now from television and it gets even a little bit worse when you get into the numbers. Most of what Americans know about the positions that candidates take on the issues come from those dumb 30-second spot commercials. Now, if that isn't frightening, I mean, that's why the candidates this election cycle are spending a billion dollars on spot commercials. A billion dollars. Well, they're doing it because that's how Americans learn. And Without going on and on about this, uh, the observation I make in the book is, you know, we don't have a system. This is what I call a non-system system. Nobody would sit down and design a system that worked where most of the people got most of what they know from those 30-second spots. So we are left with this kind of mishigas of a, of a non-system system, and it's crippling uh, the practice of democracy in this country. I'm glad that we got a Michigas in this morning's show. That's that's you know I haven't used that word in any of my interviews yet. I don't know where it came from. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Rick, you're you're right though in pointing out that uh, we can't just say voters are stupid or Americans are stupid because uh, you can go into any bar and watch the news and you'll hear someone say, you know, Americans are stupid. I mean, you you have to. Uh, have that mean something, not just to have it as throw, you know, some throw throwaway line to be dismissed. And that's why I thought it was really interesting that you had these uh, five defining characteristics of stupidity. And one of them I wanted to ask you about is sheer ignorance, and that is a quote: ignorance of critical facts about important events in the news, and ignorance of how our government functions and who's in charge. That made me think about the changes that have happened. In uh, on TV and in TV news over, I, I 
think I could accurately say about the last 30 years, and that was the change in public affairs and community service content that the United, that uh, programmers used to have to have under the FCC. I, I believe it was from, I think I'll be speaking in Eastern time now, I think it was like 6 to 7 or maybe it was 5 to 7 in the evening you had to have public affairs programming, and all of a sudden they started diluting that standard and that requirement. So all of a sudden you could have as public affairs programming, uh, because it's informational, Jeopardy, or you could have uh, Access Hollywood or something like that. Is is education of the masses in a democracy too important to leave to market forces? To some extent, do you have to have uh, the government stepping in, even if it's just to have community service and public affairs programming uh, regulated for a couple of hours every day? Well, the um, uh, change in the regulations, particularly under the Reagan administration, where they got rid of the uh, um, uh, the fairness rule and um, other rules requiring a commitment to news, I think that that uh, has had uh, an adverse uh, effect on the country. If you let let's let's do a little history here that uh, I think is fun and interesting and illuminating. Uh, back in the 1950s. Uh, television uh, was just uh, a pioneer force in American democracy, and they did very, very little public affairs programming. Then the quiz show scandals came along, and the reputation of television uh, declined precipitously. Uh, There were editorials in papers all across the country condemning television as this uh, iniquitous, uh, corrupt force in our society. In response, the networks, and basically you had three main networks then who were in charge of everything, uh, although there was also a fourth, um, the little-remembered Dumont network, but uh, basically uh, the three main networks. And uh, their response to the quiz show scandal was to say, well, let's put a lot of emphasis on public affairs programming. So they... They began doing documentaries. They did hundreds of documentaries uh, over a two-year period right after the quiz show scandal. Uh, that's when you start getting documentaries like The Harvest of Shame. Uh, these uh, had an enormous impact on our politics and our thinking, and I, they were splendid. This was the golden age of news on television. And then uh, slowly... Uh, they lost their commitment to news as they became uh, just big money machines. And as they, the more money they, they got from uh, commercial programming, the less interested they were in putting on uh, public affairs shows uh, so that we get to the point where we are now where uh, none, of the, none of the three major networks are doing documentaries anymore that are uh, comparable to, say, The Harvest of Shame. Uh, which was uh, a wonderful documentary that illuminated the the problem of farm workers in this country. So that is a piece of the story. Um, What I'd love us to be able to talk about is uh, the the consequences of this gross ignorance. I argue in the book, which is um, uh, an argument that's beyond the article that's excerpted on uh, uh, TomDispatch.com. I argue in the book that we have uh, a 10-alarm fire 
uh, in the country that because of uh, ignorant voters, uh, our politicians uh, are able to uh, 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 just get away with policies that uh, don't don't pass the smell test. But it's because ignorant voters are sitting ducks for wily politicians. And let's go into some numbers here because the numbers are very, very important. On the eve of the Iraq war, 60 percent of the American people, about 60 percent of the American people, were convinced that Saddam Hussein was behind 9-11. Now, even at that time, there was no evidence for it. But why did people believe it? Because the Bush-Cheney administration, in their attempt to drum up support for the war, had dropped hints that Saddam somehow had something to do with 9-11. A year later, the 9-11 Commission comes out with its big report, and they say flat out, Saddam had nothing to do with 9-11. And still, 50% of the American people believed that he did. Now, how can you run a democracy when half the country won't find out the basic information, the most basic fact about the biggest event of our time? If they can't figure out the biggest event of our time, 9-11, it's probably the biggest thing to come along since the Kennedy assassination, uh, how can we expect them to follow the ins and outs of tax policy or national health care? We're a bumper sticker nation because people don't pay attention. So all we have is slogans, and that's a terrible way to run a democracy. But, you know, who – I mean, I would think that if the government is giving out this kind of inaccurate information – and just just to, you know, reinforce again what you're saying about inaccurate information, um, I saw a study online, and this stunned me. And you might be able to correct me because I think I, I actually had, had heard a, a different higher number, um, but uh, I was looking around for it online, and the one that I could find was that 10 percent of Americans – don't know when 9-11 happened. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, uh, it's <laughs> I mean, Look, you know. Here, here, I'll give you another one. Okay. Half of the people in this country don't know that it is that it was this country that dropped the atomic bomb. <laughs> now, how do you run a democracy that way? In other words, we've got all this, we spent so much money on education, and yet people are apparently just not paying attention. They're just not paying attention. Now, I think if you could get all 300 million of us in a town hall in one room and you had some politicians up front and they were talking about issues uh, that you could probably educate people uh, very easily. You know, this is this doesn't require anything more than 100 uh, IQ, but uh, people are busy leading their own lives. They're not curious. And a con- in a consumer's republic, people have so many diversions for their attention other than politics that they wind up, you know, going to the movies, taking a ride in the car, watching a video game, listening to the radio, uh, anything but paying attention to politics. Uh, We're speaking with Rick Shankman. Uh, The name of his book is Just How Stupid Are We? Facing the Truth About the American Voter. And it's published by Basic Books. And we're going to have a direct link to their webpage uh, shortly after this morning's show. So you could, if you wanted to, you could order it directly through the publisher. But of course, you can get it at Amazon. You can get it at Barnes and Noble. You can get it at most uh, local bookstores, I'm certain by now. Uh, You know, you, uh, one of the things that uh, is 
kind of disturbing to me about this whole situation. You were saying how the American public, because of this uh, ignorance, if you are the American voter, because of this ignorance, our democracy not being well informed, uh, are more easily manipula- manipulated by the powers that be, by either, you know, the people in the media who are pundits who are trying to make money off of this or by the government itself. Does this lack of knowledge also disempower us? Because you write how political scientists say there is uh, damning hard evidence pointing incontrovertibly to the conclusion that millions are embarrassingly ill-informed and that they do not care that they are. I mean, you know, I think the typical American, if you if you said something, you know, like, why aren't, why aren't you more interested in the world around you? They would say, well, look, you know, I got to work eight hours a day. I commute an hour a day and then I have to eat. Then I have to take care of my kids. If I'm lucky, I get, you know, the average American is actually getting seven and a half, eight hours a night of sleep. And then on weekends, I've got my social obligations uh, to, to try to uh, spend a little bit of time to take action for our, demo- you know, to try to make the world better. And then nothing ever happens. Do you think that there's a do you think that there's also a sense of disempowerment from this uh, ignorance, not just a lack of information or being poorly informed, but the belief that you can't do anything? Well, the irony, of course, is that we've never been more democratic. And I go into this uh, theme in several chapters in the book. Look, you know, a hundred years ago, it was corporations who were wholly in charge of our government. Uh, Literally, senators were, uh, um, you know, they were they were in the pocket of the corporations. Not quite literally, but they were uh, they they were on the take. Uh, They were being bribed by corporate interests. Uh, women weren't voting. Blacks weren't voting. Uh, because of all the um, uh, reforms, political reforms of the 20th century, uh, we are more democratic than ever before. Um, today, politicians listen uh, intently to uh, the pulse of the people, and they, through polling, uh, they take the measure. They take the, they take the pulse weekly, sometimes almost daily, to find out what are the people thinking, what are the people thinking, so that they can then march in lockstep with public opinion. In addition to that, we have the initiative, we have the referendum, uh, and when we pick political candidates now, it's not party bosses selecting these candidates. It is us in primaries and caucuses, primarily primaries. So this is a much more democratic country than ever before. And what I say to people is, sure, you're leading, leading busy lives. I get that. But if you want to live in this kind of democratic society, there are obligations. And if you don't, well, then maybe we ought to roll back our democracy. I don't want to do that. I don't want to shrink our democracy. But we can't keep going in the way that we have and expect uh, the outcome to be positive results. Instead, the outcome will be more stupid wars like the Iraq war because people weren't paying attention. You know, 80 percent of the American people who supported the war cited as one of their prime reasons for supporting it, this misinformation about Saddam Hussein being behind 9-11. So ignorance is leading to bad policies. Now, the Bush administration never could have gotten away with this war, uh, except that they were counting on people being stupid. Now, if we want to live in a democracy, there are obligations. Uh, the, the Minutemen didn't die fighting on Lexington and Concord uh, so that you know, we could plop down in front of the television set every night and and watch um, uh, primetime programming. 
there was an expectation that uh, we are endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights and liberties, and we have the brains to govern ourselves. And they, they, they had confidence in it, and we're betraying their confidence by being so indifferent to politics. Yeah, it's uh, it's stunningly odd, or it's it's stunning what's happening to the world around us, especially to the American voter and the lack of uh, quality information that we have. You know, I know that I'm going to be getting this kind of email uh, after our conversation today, Rick, and I want to make sure that we address this because sure. I, I don't want to get this kind of email. I'm going to sure. get email from people that says that, you know, from conspiracy theorists that say that there's a reason that we're being misinformed by the media. There is a reason that the media didn't make certain that the American public knew that Saddam Hussein was not involved in 9-11. And that's because they're all part of this big military, industrial, congressional complex that it was trying to get American Americans to back a war in order to uh, give money and resources to the corporate sponsors of our government. Uh, it, what, what can you say to disabuse us of this idea of a cabal and a conspiracy theory between government, corporation, contractors, and, uh, and uh, the media? Well, let me reframe this a little bit differently, because I think it's always uh, very convenient to be able to blame our problems on George Bush or Dick Cheney or the military-industrial complex, or the media. But in fact, because this really is a democracy now, and people really do have an awful lot of power, it's not like they lack the power, uh, because of that, uh, they have to take responsibility. If you were educated, you wouldn't be taken in by this. So you can blame the media, but uh, why are people not paying attention? Now, that's that's where the focus needs to be. I'm, I'm tired, you know, five years after this war, into this war, I am tired of people blaming uh, Bush and Cheney in the media. Uh, that debate is stale. It's tiresome. It doesn't get us anywhere. At this point, we need to move the, uh, move the debate to the American people themselves. And we need to first admit that we have a problem. Like alcoholics, we have to admit that we have a problem. And that's the most important step. And then secondly, and this is not an inconsiderable challenge, we have to figure out what are the forces that led us to this situation and what can we do to correct it? You know, we were. I try to, I try to reframe reframe the question. Right. No, and, and that made sense. And, and it, it, your writing actually made me think of a, a recent guest we had on the show, a social psychologist by the name of Siri uh, Carpenter. And uh, Siri, uh, she had written an article uh, called uh, Bur- "Sorry, Buried Prejudice, the Bigot in Our Brain, which discussed racism. And she said, you know, we first have to realize that we all have these stereotypes. This goes along with what exactly you were just saying, the same kind of steps. Uh, we first have to realize that we have these stereotypes. Then we have to say we want to do something about them. Then we have to figure out an action to take to, to get over these racial prejudices that she believes we all had, but it, it all have. But it, it, that's a lot to ask of people and something that I don't think a lot of Americans are willing to do when it comes to racism. Do you think that Americans are any more willing to do that as far as reassessing and reexamining uh, America's role in the world? 
Well, let me uh, let me try this on for size. Um, uh, let them move to Russia if they don't want to be in charge of this uh, country anymore. You know, if if you believe in democracy, stay here. If you don't really believe in democracy, in other words, citizens having responsibilities to find out what's actually going on, then uh, let me get really bold here. Get the hell out. This is a country for people who believe in democracy. I believe in democracy. But for it to work, people have to pay attention. People have to pay attention. You know, and civics is kind of a fuddy-duddy 19th century subject. Uh, we expect Mrs. Gertrude to be at the front of the room with the uh, chalk in her hand and, and writing down, you know, what are the three branches of government? And then having everybody in unison say, oh, it's the legislative, the executive, and the judicial branch. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, most Americans today didn't have those civics lessons. Uh, and if they did, they'd forgotten about it because they were inattentive and they didn't have subsequent reinforcement. So you get into a situation where today only two in five Americans know we have three branches of government and can name them. Now, you cannot run a democracy that way. And as Arthur Schlesinger Jr., the great historian, said um, uh, shortly before he died, what makes us think our democracy is permanent? We kind of feel like it's on autopilot. Oh, somebody else can worry about uh, uh, our democracy. I'm too busy earning a living. Well, the only reason you can earn a living in this society and enjoy the incredible prosperity that Americans have is because people previously made great sacrifices to build this system. But this system, uh, much as it a what has been called a machine that goes of itself, uh, will not continue going of itself if we continue down the path we are on. I say in the book that you know uh, nobody knows how much ignorance a country can take, uh, but I fear that we're we're going to find out. You know, we we've already had an Iraq war. Uh, now we're big and rich and powerful enough that we'll survive the Iraq war, even though uh, probably, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people uh, have been killed in this uh, in this terrible thing. Um, and it's cost us hundreds of billions of dollars and over time will cost us uh, maybe more than a trillion dollars, if you believe some estimates. Um, we can still survive this. Uh, but maybe uh, the next president will will bring us yet another kind of uh, colossal uh, uh, mistake like Iraq. And, you know, one, two, three of these, uh, uh, it might really do some real damage. So people have got to pay attention. This is a 10-alarm fire. I want a crash program in civics so that people pay attention. What I argue in the book is, you know, that if politicians were angels, we wouldn't need to be um, we wouldn't need to be smart voters, but they're not, so we need smart voters. Now, we don't need 100% of smart voters, but it'd be nice if we had like 60%. We're smart enough to at least follow complicated debate so that we could have an intelligent outcome. Uh, we're speaking with Rick Shankman. Uh, Rick, just a couple more questions for you. Uh, for you. A couple. Uh, again, the name of the book is Just How Stupid Are We Facing the Truth? about the American voter. Um, I know that there are people who are listening right now who uh, are saying, 
well, yeah, we're uh, misinformed, and it's people on the people on the left would be saying, yeah, we're misinformed, and look at those idiots who are on the right who watch Fox News Channel, and then there are people who are on the right who are going to say, yeah, people are misinformed. Look at those idiots who watch uh, or believe what's on sixty minutes, or watch MSNBC, or even NBC News, which has been their most recent target has been uh, NBC News. Do you think that this ignorance? crosses ideological and party lines is like would you be comfortable saying uh such and such an ideology is less ignorant of the world around us than such and such an ideology well i do think that uh republicans over the last generation have shaped their arguments more to appeal to emotions than democrats who still have been in um have adopted a, a rational model of politics. Uh, you put a Republican up against a Democrat, and the Republican is usually reaching for emotional arguments, and the Democrat is trying to be rational about things. And in that argument, the Democrat tends to lose. But I don't think that this is a, a partisan issue, because the, all the surveys show that both Republicans and Democrats um, measure, uh, unfortunately, uh, a lot of ignorance there. <laughs> It's on both sides. This is an American problem. It is not a Republican problem or a Democratic problem. Republicans have just been better at coming to terms with uh, gross ignorance, and Democrats uh, haven't. So to get to the point where you have um, uh, guys like uh, Drew Weston recommending, he's a social psychologist uh, at Emory, um, who's written a book called The Political Brain, uh, recommending that Democrats should adopt the same tactics as Republicans, and we should just get as emotional as as Republicans are. Well, to me, that that maybe will win you an election or two, but that does not go to the heart of the problem. So I think we need to fix the basic problem. Yeah, what I heard uh, when Air America was starting up, when I heard uh, people saying what we need is a Bill O'Reilly for the left, I cringed. I, I thought that that would be the worst thing that the left or any type of alternative uh, news source could have. Does this really come down to maybe the, the 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 content of the message? Does simplistic win over complicated? Because it seems to me often that conservative ideology, right-wing Republican ideology, is uh, more capable or more able to come up with uh, simplistic, uh, you know, one-sentence understanding of a complicated situation that might be, you know, far more misleading, far more inaccurate than a complicated or complex and very well-thought through uh, kind of argument from somebody on the left. Do you think that, that it comes down to that, that you know, one ideology is more apt for simplistic uh, language while the other one is more apt for complicated or complex? Uh, I do think that that's part of it. You know, look, as, as soon as you have to explain anything in this country, you've lost the public debate. If, it, if your policy can't be summed up in a bumper sticker, you lose. The other side wins. Because people are basically susceptible to slogans. In the absence of knowledge, slogans drive the debate. I actually argue in the book that it's what drives our debate on a deeper level are myths. Because if people don't know facts, then that leaves a vacuum, and into that vacuum uh, step myths. So we have all kinds of myths. The, the myth of Saddam Hussein uh, being a Hitler 
type figure uh, that uh, so uh, uh, struck fear in Americans that they were willing to rally around Bush for his war. Uh, the, the myth that you see on the campaign trail all the time is candidates pretending to be uh, just like uh, ordinary folk. Uh, it's the common man myth. That's why you had Barack Obama bowling one day. Uh, that was a photo op to try to show that he's just an ordinary guy. That's why you had Hillary Clinton knocking back a scotch or whiskey, whatever she had in that bar in Pennsylvania. Uh, that's why George W. Bush, uh, even though he had degrees from two of the great universities in the country and went to Andover and his father was president of the United States, he went around the country in 2000 pretending to be like the guy you'd want at a barbecue. That's why Al Gore went around the country in 2000, and he talked about how during the summers he would go back to his grandpappy's farm in Tennessee and plow the muddy field. And he'd even relate when he'd get going about how when his mother was a young woman, she earned 25-cent tips as a waitress because he's playing off of the common man myth. When politicians give speeches that elicit an emotional response from the audience, they are almost always playing on some myth. Our job is to try to figure out what the myth is so it doesn't bend and warp our understanding of who these people are and of events. And that takes being attentive. You know, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned something there, and that was uh, labels and how easily, how uh, vulnerable we are to these labels. And what you're saying about barbecue, because, you know, uh, I think that this ignorance and, you know, and I get this idea from your book and uh, the, the TomDispatch.com article, which I want to keep plugging because Tom Dispatch has always been very helpful for us in helping us book guests. But uh, the name of Rick's book is Just How Stupid Are We? Facing the Truth About the American uh, Voter. Uh, it, this leads to people you know you know not necessarily knowing what the issues are or the policies but uh, you know I'm a soccer mom or a security mom or a NASCAR dad or I'm in a red state or I'm in a blue state or you know who do you want, uh, more want to have a beer with that kind of thinking instead of uh, looking into the substance of what the politicians stand for and this leads to our last question Rick uh, it's called what we call our question from hell the question we hate to ask you might hate to answer I'm really not too sure. It sometimes just doesn't work out at all. Again, we've been speaking with Rick Shankman. He is the author of Just How Stupid Are We? Facing the Truth About the American Voter. Um, a lot of people are hoping that this kind of era of easy labels, this kind of generalization, this kind of which president do you or which candidate would you rather go have a beer with they're hoping that uh, that's at least slipping away to some sort because Barack Obama is lifting up the rhetoric of the debate and the rhetoric within political rhetoric today. Yet, what do I see Thursday on CNN? And I didn't even stick around to see what the outcome of the survey was because I didn't care. And the, the survey was uh, coming up, we are going to tell you uh, which Amer- you know, which uh, candidate Americans would rather go to a barbecue with? 
And I <laughs> immediately thought of that stupid beer line from 2000. I don't want to have a beer with the president. And a matter of fact, there's no way that I'm ever going to have a beer with anybody who's ever running for president. Uh, maybe Dennis Kucinich. Uh, he doesn't drink. But uh, you know, I'm not going to have a beer or barbecue with these people anyway. It seems so idiotic. So to what extent, because we're hearing all this hype about Barack Obama lifting up the rhetoric, the political rhetoric within this country, to what extent do you think that's actually happening? Well, I always think it's a good thing when people get excited about politics and the young people who've been coming out to his rallies, the fact that they're taking an interest in politics is a good thing. The fact that turnout uh, during the uh, Democratic primaries uh, uh, was much higher than it's been in the past uh, few decades, uh, that's a positive. People who participate in the system tend to be more educated voters. So all that's positive. On the other hand, I have yet to have it proven that uh, the people who are coming to the rallies uh, aren't being swept up in the emotion of the event. And it's, you know, if Barack Obama didn't have a nice smile and if he was uh, older and slower moving, my guess is you wouldn't get all those people out there. So, again, we're, we're in emotional territory here. They're coming because they're getting an emotional jolt. Uh, in addition to the message of hope, uh, it's, it's, there, there is kind of a mixed uh, picture here. But uh, it's always a good thing when you get higher turnout. That means people are paying some attention, at least. And, and I appreciate that. That's a good. That's a positive. Let's build on that. Uh, Rick, uh, one other thing I wanted to mention before you go is you wrote a, bo- a book uh, back in, I think it was like about 1989 or 1990 when I was still uh, working at a bookstore here in Chicago uh, called Legends, Lies, and Cherished Myths of American History. And I spent many a break reading that book. It's a very enjoyable book. And uh, if people, uh, I think people should check it out. I think there's a lot of great stuff in there that I, our listeners would be interested in. You also, uh, again, are part of the history, I want to make sure I get this right, the History News Network and people can find that website. Again, a fantastic website. Uh, I believe it's at hnn.com. Is that correct? Uh, hnn.us. .us, sorry. And uh, you blog at howstupidblog.com. Rick Shankman, author of Just How Stupid, Are We Facing the Truth About the American Voter? Really appreciate you being on the show this morning, and this is a must-reading for our listening audience. Thanks so much for being on our show. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. All right. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. And we're back. I noticed a very prescient sentence in the interview we just played from Rick Schenkman during the twilight hours of the second Bush administration in the infancy of social media. Quote, Nobody knows how much ignorance a country can take. But we're going to find out, end quote. It has me wondering, 15 years on, have we found out? Are we still in the process of finding out? Have we reached peak ignorance? Have we already passed its apex? Or is there still some room for more? After all, our interview with Rick came when social media was barely in existence yet. And most most politicians lacked Twitter accounts. Certainly, today, there's more engagement, not only on social media, but even in terms of voter turnout. In fact, that's been increasing since uh, 2008 when he talked to us. 
uh, especially among people under 45, and the numbers are undeniable. We are more engaged because people of all political stripes are realizing that this is hell. I remember when it was far cooler to be politically apathetic in the 2000s, especially as a young person, uh, than it is now. Chickens have come home to roost in a way that even the lowest information citizen can't easily ignore or anesthetize them themselves against. In the age of social media and constant mutual surveillance, it's also harder to keep things behind closed doors. But in this age of heightened partisanship and engagement and information sharing, are our politics less stupid than they were 15 years ago? Or are they dumber? Or about the same? I don't know. Judging by Rick's uh, or current Twitter feed, which can be found at, at Rick Shankman, that's R-I-C-K-S-H-E-N-K-M-A-N. Rick would probably agree that our ignorant tanks still isn't quite full. Coming up, Two interviews from July 4th, 2009. On Tuesday, we hear from Saskia Sassen, professor of history and member of the Committee on Global Thought at Columbia University. Saskia's most recent book is 2007's Sociology of Globalization from Norton. Uh, at least, that was her most recent book at the time of the interview. She wrote the Open Democracy piece the, ex the New Executive Politics, A Democratic Challenge. And before that, she wrote the Open Democracy article, Too Big to Save, The End of Financial Capitalism. Both of these pieces will be the subject of Chuck's interview with her, and it is quite the riveting discussion, I'll tell you. Then on Wednesday... Again, from July 4th, 2009, we hear from Charles Chalmers Johnson, who wrote the Tom Dispatch piece, How to Deal with America's Empire of Bases, as well as the Truth Dig piece, Chalmers Johnson on the Cost of Empire. His Tom Dispatch piece, entitled Economic Death Spiral at the Pentagon, uh, was also recently published at the time. Chalmers is the president of Japan Policy Research Institute, and Professor Emeritus at the University of California, San Diego. Chalmers wrote the trilogy that includes Nemesis, The Crisis of the American Republic, Blowback, The Costs and Consequences of American Empire, and The Sorrows of Empire, Militarism, Secrecy, and the End of the Republic, all three available from Metropolitan Books. Also on Wednesday, we will hear another moment of truth from the archives by the estimable, but debatedly esteemed, Jeff Dorchin. Prefiguring his super truth items, Jeff once told us about some bats he made up on November 10th, 2018. I'm producer Will Ippen, filling in for Chuck Mertz. I may not be blind or gap tooth, but man, am I bitter. And man, do I need a shower. Stay beautiful, listeners. I'll catch you tomorrow on America's birthday. My demon is on my butt. Ah. My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller.
And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>